Last Sunday night, if you weren't able to join with us, we had three different men look at three different psalms. Uh, we took a small portion of time for each psalm, so we were able to cover three different songs. And what became evident during that time was that we were made, God actually made us for praise. You were designed to praise. It just naturally comes out of people. You were designed to delight in your Creator. That, these, these are your default settings. What this means, even in a fallen world, is that everyone praises every week. And every single person worships something every week. That is how God created us. Those default settings aren't undone. So everybody here worshiped and praised something this week. Several things, maybe. But chiefly, our praise as God's children should be directed back to God. But this is exactly why idolatry is so prevalent. Maybe not the idolatry that Jeremiah denounces or the idolatry that Paul addresses even in 1 Corinthians. But we have sort of an American polished veneer over our idolatry. The reason idolatry exists is because you were made for praise. You were made to worship something. The New Testament helps define idolatry. It says this in Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we do have idolatry that exists even today in America. And that's partly because how God created us. The more we see of God and His glory the more we become aware of indwelling sin. Okay, so that's actually what exposes the sin within our heart. Uh, Ken Collier, director up at the Wilds Camp of North Carolina, has a, a memorable little statement. He says, just two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And in both of those, praise is involved. And in both of those, worship is involved. So we are either praising and worshiping God or we are praising and worshiping something much less than God. And typically it revolves around self-worship. But most worship and praise falls far short of what God designed it to be. And that would be true probably in the average Christian's life this week. Our praise and our worship fell far short of what God designed it to be. So the question is, who or what have you worshipped? I would say as much for unbelievers as for believers, if your object of praise this week was wrong, if your object of worship was wrong, then you will most likely find yourself frustrated and irritable. Because God designed you to praise and worship and be satisfied in that praise and worship. You were designed to delight in him as a person. So if you get that off center, if you abandon the object of your praise and worship, you will most likely become irritable and frustrated. Here's how dangerous it becomes. You can actually exchange the object of worship, which is God, for an object of worship called religion. Even conservative religion can become an idol. And that will bring out inside of you irritability and frustration. 
you will probably then experience chronic discouragement and depression. You will be weighed down with burdens and emotions you were never meant to carry. You'll begin living in fear, even minor paranoia. And you will believe the lie that that thing or person you are worshiping can actually bring enjoyment at some point. But the reason we keep pursuing it and the reason we stay on that path is because that enjoyment never fully comes. You know, as we open our scriptures to Psalm 32, we see firsthand the misery of a sinning saint. This is what is called a penitential psalm. A penitential psalm is the record of a repentant. Who is the repentant in this psalm? Okay, if you look at Psalm 32, look right above where the caption is. It says a psalm of David. And this isn't arguable. Paul in Romans actually quotes Psalm 32 and says, even as David has written. So this is a psalm of David, the repentant. This is the second of seven penitential psalms that we find in the Psalter. Psalm 6 is the first, probably the most well-known is Psalm 51. Others include 38, 102, 130, and 143. What the penitential psalms do is they show for us the attitude and even the heart cry of what should be common for a godly person. It's not that you just come to this point when things are dark and unbearable, though God will bring a saint to that point. But this is the live. This is this is sort of a, a vocabulary and an example of what our heart cry ought to continually be. Now, if you look at your psalm, Psalm 32, it says a song of David. What word comes next? Maskil. You see that? This psalm is the first of 13 psalms to have that word in the title. And it actually means to be skilled, to be wise or to instruct they believe this was a type of didactic or reflective poem in order to instruct people about the way forward. Okay, and we're going to see that as we unpack this. We all know a little bit about David. David was a successful man. David was a king. But David reached a point where he thought he was untouchable. That is part of the problem. That's part of the attitudes that shape the background of Psalm 32, David got to a point where he had the resources, he had the title, he had the position and the power to take what was not his and to plan a crafty cover up after he realized he had done a wicked thing. So we're going to reflect and learn from this psalm. Like Psalm 51, Psalm 32 is occasioned by David's sin of adultery and the strategic murder of her husband. That's the background of Psalm 32. I am sure that David never thought this incident would be recorded in a book. He probably never thought when he was walking on his rooftop and had this plan that even before the sin, these things would be recorded on the pages of a book for everyone else to read. And yet what happens? Second Samuel 11, it's recorded in a book. But we could actually deceive ourselves and think because our sin is not like David's, we've actually gotten a free pass that somehow God has overlooked our sinful choices. And the truth is he hasn't. The truth is that as we look at Second Samuel 11 and read about David's choices, God sees our choices and our lifestyle just as clear as we're able to look back 
can see David's. Psalm 32 comes at the end of at least several months, possibly an entire year, where David lived in a dark, unrepentant existence. Psalm 32 describes the misery of a saint who has sinned. We're actually going to read in Psalm 32 of the deep physical and mental consequences of unconfessed sin. Yet we will also see at the end the blessedness of forgiveness and the joy of reconciliation. Look at verse 1. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. We'll stop right there. The word blessedness is actually an exclamation. So he is going to tell you, David is actually going to write this, and he's going to say, how blessed is the person... Who has experienced this? Of course, the blessedness is ushered in after a dark period, several months up to a year of a dark, unrepentant existence. Immediately, we're going to be confronted with three vivid descriptions of sin. What are they? If you look down at verses one and two, we're going to have three descriptions of sin that are actually going to help explain the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. The first word is transgression, verse 1. That simply means rebellion. It is a revolt against lawlessness. You're going to see that in David's sin. He actually broke three of the Ten Commandments. David knew what the law said. He purposely revolted against the law, and that kind of sin is called a transgression. 1 John 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness or sin is lawlessness. Sin is the transgression of the law. There's another term used in verse one, not transgression, but sin. Sin is actually missing the mark. It is a deviation from the path of right and a deviation from the path of what our duty is. David's going to say, involved in all of this, Lord, I've also sinned. It has been a breaking and a revolt of your law, and it is a deviation from your path. Matter of fact, the word blessedness is used in Psalm 1 when it says, Blessed is the man that walketh not. Okay, so blessed is the man who does not depart from the path, right? But how blessed is the man who does what? He meditates in the in the law, okay, so that's going to keep him from the transgression. So he stays on the path and he meditates in the law of God. There's a third term. You're going to find that in verse 2. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not. What's the next word? Okay, iniquity. This actually is going to ratchet it down another level. And this is going to describe a perverse and depraved practicing of known sin. A perverse and depraved practicing of known sin. So you're confronted with three vivid descriptions for sin. And then he's going to counter these with four beautiful terms. If you look in verse one, the first term you come in contact with is the word forgiven. Forgiveness is the lifting of a burden or the removal of a barrier. Then you're going to run into another word in verse one, the word covered This is the idea that you are protected from deserved wrath. 
What you have done is now hidden from heaven's view. There's another word. In verse 2, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not. Okay, other translations will say, counts not against or who does not impute. Here's the idea. It's It's as if David had a credit card. Of course, he didn't understand credit cards. But he took the credit card and he charged evil thinking. Then he charges adultery. Then he charges murder. And the statement comes in and guess what's on the statement? At the end of the month, there they are. And he can't pay that. He can't pay that balance. So he rips up the statement and he acts like it's not there, but it is there. Statement comes in again at the end of the month. Guess what's on the statement? Guess what's on his account? And he lets this go for months up to a year. And you know how it is. If you've ever been in debt, it weighs on the mind. It occupies the thoughts. And if you know you can't pay it next month or the following month, and you may not be able to pay this, and now you're starting to see that interest go up, it's going to start creating in you physical degeneration. It's going to affect you. It's going to increase your stress levels. It's going to increase your anxiety. You're going to become more irritable. You know what the idea is here? David finally got to the point where he knows that he charged these things on the card. But when he returned back to God, he gets the he gets the statement. And guess what's missing? It's as if he never even charged those things. They've been paid for. Do you if, if, if you're on the receiving end of that kind of forgiveness, guess what? You are a blessed person. You're expecting the statement to come in, a statement you cannot pay, and it says what? Paid in full. This morning we sang, Jesus paid it all. Do you know that you could be in the position of experientially understanding how blessed is the man who receives this? Imputeth not. You have been released from a justly incurred debt, but God forgives you. He doesn't charge it to your account. And then finally, in whose spirit there is no guile, the latter part of verse two. The idea here is a description of the joy of being honest before God and rightly related to him and honest before other people in whose spirit there is no deceit. So this is what we understand from this true forgiveness. A true, clean account is only granted to those who come to God honestly and humbly. In whose spirit there is no deceit. We all know what it's like to have someone apologize who doesn't really mean it. Right now, Johnny, tell her, tell her you're sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. Johnny, did you really mean that? I guess. Let me ask you, is he really repentant? Is that the spirit that we're talking about here? What the scriptures are unfolding here is a spirit that comes to God open, making no excuses, saying the exceeding sinfulness of my sin is great. I have done it. I am responsible. It was a choice. And that's the spirit in which he comes to the Lord. This is echoed in Psalm 51. It says David cries out, same sin, another penitential psalm. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. There's the idea of that record being removed. Blot it out. It's there. Mark it out. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is the path of the repentant. It's a penitential psalm. Well, let's look at the distress of unrepentant sin. For many months, David, David's adultery and murder, let's call it what it is, right? It wasn't a disease. It wasn't a lapse of judgment. It was not an accident. David chose to sin. He designed it to be that way. And this, by the way, this is part of the way forward. If you're looking at Psalm 32 and you're looking at Psalm 51, part of the way forward is this calling sin what God is calling sin. You weren't born this way. It's not a sickness. We choose it, don't we? After David chose to sin, he lived unrepentant. Matter of fact, David, we said this already, broke three commandments, the 10th, the 7th and the 6th. He breaks those commandments and then he starts off on a grand cover up. Right. He places Uriah within shot of the archers. Okay, so he's got the power. He's got the resources. He's untouchable. What David says goes. He's able to do all this. A grand cover up. Yet he cannot cover up what? Well, he can't cover up Nathan, the prophet, who's God's man, but he can't cover up his own conscience. And every day that conscience is wearing him down, putting him down. As one person said, the the wheels of God grind slow, but they grind exceeding fine. There it is. The wheels of God grinding away at David's conscience. And he's about to explain to you. What's going to go on mentally and physically? Look at verse three. When I kept silence, literally, when I concealed it, when I kept it a secret, when I tried to hide it, my bones waxed old. He was becoming like an aged man. His bones, his strength, his physical condition were all being affected. He was physically showing the effects of suppressing his sin. He says again in verse three, through my roaring all the day long, roaring, groaning or moaning, which is a disturbed state of mind. It includes both physical and mental anguish. You know, from somebody standing far, you would have thought David got away with it. You could have thought he sinned and God didn't do anything. For months, you could have thought that, up to a year. But Scripture shows to us the other side. David says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. You know, when God starts dealing with a person, it is continual. It is constant. It is day and night. And those things begin to wear down a man's body. For for a young man who knew such close communion with his shepherd king, Yahweh, And he would play on his little stringed instrument praises to God. And out there in the wilderness as a shepherd understood that close communion that he could have with God for that to be abruptly cut off for him to suppress this. He is in mental distress. What caused this? Look at verse four. For day and night, 
Thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. So let me ask you a question. Can you escape God's hand? David says day and night, Lord, your hand was heavy upon me. Can you escape God's hand? Okay, young person, can you escape your parents' hand? Yeah. Right? Most of you have your own success stories. Still sitting on those. Waiting until you're 25 to say, well, when I was 13, you know, now it's safe to divulge all the details and it's funny. So can you get away from your parents' hand? Absolutely. Can you get away from your pastor's hand? That's even easier. Can you get away from your friend's hand? Yes. The danger is then you start believing you can get away from everybody's hand. Until you read Psalm 32. And you realize you may have duped everyone else. You might be slick. You might be believable. You might be lovable. Even cuddly and innocent. But God's hand is what? And God is only as hard as he needs to be. If God can use a screwdriver, he will. But he's also got a hammer in his toolbox. And God can speak the language of tragedy. His hand is heavy upon David day and night all day long. Verse three for day and night. Verse four, God gives little rest to an unrepentant conscience. We have here a scriptural illustration of what Jim Berg describes in his book. God is more than enough. He says this quote. The negative effects of unresolved pressures on the mind and its emotions include the following depression Boredom, listlessness, dullness, and lack of interest. Irritability and touchiness, phobias, irrational fears, and anxiety-related disorders, panic attacks, etc. Compulsive behavior, extreme perfectionism. Do we, do we understand perfectionism is not a Christian character trait? Sometimes people take pride in their perfect. Oh, I'm a perfectionist. Right? As if it's a good thing? It's actually not a good thing. It is a compulsive disorder. Okay, now, giving an eye for detail, that's different. Doing things excellently, that's fine. But what you will find out with every perfectionist I've ever met or dealt with, they are only a perfectionist in the areas they want to be. And they have other areas that are glaring contradictions to the rule they live by in public. Let me continue the quote. Eating disorders, self-mutilation, and excessive cleanliness... Not that we're discouraging that, young boys. Okay? We don't think for you it's a disorder. Orderliness or exercise, changes in personal and social habits, withdrawal, obnoxiousness, multiple personality, and depressive disorders. He continues, It is crucial to understand that God never intended man to be able to handle the pressure of life on his own. And let's add to that. God never intended for you to bear the burden of sin you have chosen to carry on your own. That's why he promises to you forgiveness. That Jesus paid it all. Casting all your care on him because why? He cares for you. He loves you. He never intended for you to carry this on your own. Look at look at the effects in verse four. My moisture is turned in to the drought of summer. David, as a shepherd, as an outdoorsman, knew very well the heat of the desert in a Judea summertime. 
Matter of fact, Israel's hot, dry season matches Africa's dry, hot season. And we would always dread the month of October. We would go for months without any rain, not a single drop for months. And then October, it would only get hotter and everything was covered with dust. By the end of the day, you felt gritty. You could almost taste the dust. It was in your nose. And what we were waiting for was the rains of November. The rains of November, which would cleanse and refresh and cool. But do you know in the state that David is in, when God's hand is heavy upon him, he says, I'm drying up like the drought of summer. His energy is sapped from him. He's weary. He's hot. He's sleeping fitfully because of the heat. And he's looking for that restoration. Sadly, this is the spiritual condition of many people. And the rains never come. See, what David needed was a a sip of something other than the sewer water of his own choices. He needed to turn back to the one who offers the water of life freely. But instead, he continues to silence himself. But his body starts showing forth the fruit of his unrepentant condition. I'm not sure exactly at what point David actually broke, but he did. Matter of fact, at the end of this, it's interesting. He says in verse four, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. What's the word? Selah. Pause. Meditate. Receive instruction. Matter of fact, often when that word was given, the Israelites in response to the Levitical priesthood, when they would say that word, they would bow down, prostrate and worship God for what they just learned. What are we learning? We're learning that unconfessed sin has mental and physical consequences. Selah. And see, we know that to be true, don't we? We know that's the case. Even if I can find a scripture verse to hang my actions and choices on, it does not remove the unrest in my own heart. Because I know I am out of fellowship and out of communion with the Holy One. But after that meditation, look at verse 5. Here's the change. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. The word acknowledge isn't just I let God know about it. It's not like I acknowledge you sitting here this morning. Acknowledge is a very close, intimate recognition of what it is. The acknowledgement here is saying the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. By the way, that's called confession. First John one nine, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess. David had coveted his neighbor's wife. David had committed adultery with her. David had arranged the death of Uriah. An interesting note in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, in the genealogy of the Messiah, says this, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Hundreds of years later, in a gospel account, in a genealogical record of the Messiah, the divine viewpoint is this. Bathsheba is whose wife? Uriah's. Because the nature of this sin... David speaks in verse five of the iniquity of his sin. I acknowledge my sin unto thee and mine iniquity. Have I not hid? I said, 
I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. The idea there is he is acknowledging the perverse nature of his deviation. So he's, he's combining all these different words to show us how deep he understands and acknowledges the exceeding sinfulness of his sin. It's very important for us to understand two things. First of all, God forgave David. Do we realize that? Even as a king, taking what was not his and arranging the murder of this woman's husband. David says, you forgave me. I confessed it and you forgave me. But here's the second point. Bathsheba did not become unpregnant. And Uriah did not become unkilled. The point is this. God may graciously forgive you. And young people, I want you to hear this as you have so many of your choices ahead of you. Forgiveness does not remove all the consequences of sin in this life. You may choose to go out and have the time of your life and hop around at nightclubs and jump behind a wheel, totally intoxicated and get into an accident and wake up the next morning to find out that your arm has been amputated because of the accident. And God can forgive you. But your arm does not grow back. He's completely forgiven you. But the consequences stand. Sin has consequences that in this life, even true forgiveness cannot make go away. So the truth stands. Verse five. The Lord forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, here's the excitation to us as we approach the table. Look at verse six. For this, okay, what you just saw, great sin, great forgiveness. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. There is an implied warning here that there exists the possibility of procrastinating until it may be too late to find a place of repentance. Isaiah 55 verse 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. David moves on and he says they will call out to you. While you may be found, surely in the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. We saw a staggering illustration of floods this year. In what is on record as one of the five most powerful earthquakes to hit the world since they started recording the earthquakes. A 9.0 earthquake. It hit the east coast of Japan. Triggered tsunami waves which reached heights of up to 133 feet and which traveled six miles inland, destroying everything in its path. Japanese Prime Minister Naoto Kan said in the 65 years after the end of World War II, this is the toughest and the most difficult crisis for Japan. 15,839 deaths, 5,950 injured. Another 3,642 people missing and over 125,000 buildings damaged or destroyed. David says this in verse 6. Surely in the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. David found a safe haven in his God. David found high ground. 
He found a resort of safety in his God. Now look at God's response. You're going to see another Selah at the end of verse 7. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. David exchanges his sobs for songs. And these are songs of deliverance. Then he pauses again. Selah. Now there's a pronoun change. God's going to speak. And God says this in verse 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. The idea here is he's going to teach us. Keep reading. I will guide thee with mine eye. How many people come wondering what God would have them do in life? God promises guidance to this kind of person. Could it be you are confounded and confused because you are not in communion with him? God steps in and promises to guide you, to teach you. And he says in verse 9, be not as the horse or as the mule. Okay, these are the traits that should not characterize you. Sometimes a horse or a mule will go ahead when it's not supposed to. Or it'll stop when it's supposed to go ahead. He says, don't be like this. They have no understanding whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle lest they come near unto thee. Verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he that trusts in the, in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Literally, surround you completely. God's mercy will envelop you. Do you know that godly people have sorrow and godly people face discouragement? But in the midst of all that, they can be surrounded by God's mercies. A person who trusts God is not immune to sorrow, but because of his close communion... He is surrounded by mercies, even when his circumstances are miserable. In closing, to quote Albert Barnes, he says, He shall find mercy and favor everywhere. At home, abroad, by day, by night, in society, in solitude, in sickness, in health, in life, in death, in time, in eternity. He shall walk amidst mercies. He shall die amidst mercies. He shall live in a better world in the midst of eternal mercies. How blessed is the man who trusteth in him. Finally, David, understanding all of this, invites you to rejoice with him in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy. When's the last time you've done that? David is inviting you, if you're on the experiential end of this, the receiving end of God's forgiveness, he actually encourages you for a ringing cry of praise unto God because he's done this for you. You have been forgiven when you should have been judged. You have been given heaven when you should have been going to hell. You have been cleansed when you should be living in filthy squalor. Cry out with rejoicing because this is true of you. All ye that are upright in heart. Does Psalm 32 describe you? Okay, yes, it does. Which side? Does it, surprise, does, it, does it describe the sorrow, the mental, physical anguish? Or does it describe you, the person, imperfect, yet coming to the Lord for forgiveness? You know, this might be the, all the answer that we need this morning. This might be the answer we have been looking for to explain the frustration and the anxiety and the discouragement Coming back to him, acknowledging 
saying the same thing as he does. And letting God forgive the iniquity of our heart. Let's pray.